All I know is that to clean thick Persian rugs, you would need a Persian vacuum. Maybe even a Persian power vacuum. Uh, oh! Hey, speaking of Persian God. power vacuums... Fuck you! There was a Persian power <laughs> vacuum that began in 1335 and had been going on for decades. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. I hope you're ready for some violence today. Ah, well, I am always ready for that, I guess. Oh. Um, no, not really. <laughs> not really. Not with the Charles Manson episode. No, no. <laughs> And with the inevitable Hitler episode that's coming up. <laughs> anyway, we hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? We have Timur the Lame and Otto von Bismarck. Ooh, now that fills me with joy because Otto von Bismarck is from one of the, from one of the most important periods in modern history. True. Hmm. But I honestly don't know much about Timur the Lame. Well, you are going to learn today, sir. Color me ready to the history lab. Two men. One, a violent conqueror who was known. Fuck. <laughs> One, a violent conqueror who was known as a boogeyman in Middle Eastern culture. The other, just some guy who did some things that if he had not done, might have saved us a world war or two. In the battle for who is the most controversial, only one can come forward as the guy who cemented thousands of people together in a terrifying display of human brutality. So James, tell me, if you had to choose between meeting the love of your life and being financially invincible for the rest of your days, which would it be? Uh, being financially invisible. Invisible? <laughs> <laughs> we already are. Yeah. <laughs> but you would choose being financially invisible? Invincible. Invincible, Got Yes, it. because I have already met the love of my life, and her name is Lady Liberty. Well, uh, what about your fiancé? Well, yeah, her too. But, but what about you? Love of your life or financial invincibility? Uh, to that I would have to respond financial invincibility. Because if there's one thing I know about meeting people, it's that the more money you have, the better. Plus, I could keep doing the podcast and not have to worry about whether or not I'll be able to eat this week. But don't you care about love? I gave up on love many years ago when my girlfriend died. Jesus, your girlfriend died? Well, she's dead to me anyway. Lying rapscallion! Fuck. Yeah. Computer, please bring up Timur the Lame and Hocus Pocus the Miracle Squirrel. Wait, what? Well, I mean, Timur the Lame and Otto von Bismarck. Who's <laughs> the Miracle Squirrel? Uh, it, just a thing. I, oh, okay. it, forget about it. Nothing happened. Nothing okay. happened with the squirrel. Fine. <laughs> Uh, so, James, tell me, what is Timur the Lame best known for? Well, Timur the Lame is best known for being the worst person ever. Ah, okay. Well, um, there are some contenders for that, I'm sure. Possibly. Um, possibly. Um, but we'll have to prove his case. Yes. All right. So, uh, what did he look like? Well, he looks like the worst person ever. <laughs> Okay, um, so he looks like Hitler. <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, so, what is, speaking of Hitler, oh, okay. what is Otto von Bismarck best known for? Otto von Bismarck is best known for unifying Germany under the German Empire and acting as Imperial Chancellor, enacting something called real politic, which we will not discuss later on because I forgot to write about it. Oh, but. okay. Well, it's important. No. No. <laughs> oh, what did he look like? Uh, this man is going to talk to you about diabetes and feature in the natural for a few delightful scenes. Uh, yeah, he looks a lot like Wilford Brimley, is oh. what I'm saying. Uh, big, bushy, white mustache and eyebrows that you could use to brush your teeth. That's There's a painted disgusting. portrait of him at 21 in 1836, where he looks a lot more like a frat bro with a psychological darkness ironed out of him. And another drawing of him at 32, where he actually sports a full beard and looks nothing like a transition between a frat bro and Wilford Brimley. Ah. The guy is all over the place, and it's driving me crazy. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, here's wow. what I think we should do, okay? Yes. Just bear with me. Just okay. bear with me. What do you say we move over to Timur the Lame's early life? Uh, sure. Okay. That sounds like a good yeah. plan. Perfect. Yeah. All right, so tell yeah. us about his early life. Okay. Well, Timur was born on April 9th, 1336, in the city of Kesh in Transoxania, which is modern-day Uzbekistan. Well, those are both great names. They so. are. Uh, yes. And things started off pretty decently for young Timur. His dad was a minor noble, and his... Oh, oh my gosh, do you know what time it is, Aaron? What? It's time for the Mongol invasions! Whoa! Actually, not really. Uh, what the fuck? <laughs> uh, the Mongol invasions were pretty much over at this point, but the empire was kind of fractured. That is the Mongol Empire. And it was fighting among itself. Okay. Uh, some of these Mongols captured Timur, Timur's mom, and Timur's brothers, and carried them to the nearby city of Samarkand. Oh, man. Samarkand. 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 I don't know. I really like these names. I, I do, too. So he was captured, yes. and then what? Uh, however, Timur was either let go or managed to escape, and Im immediately sought re refuge with a gang of thieves. Whoa! Uh, these thieves raided nearby shepherds and travelers and stole things like sheep, horses, and cattle. Classic. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, and on these raids, it is believed that Timur accidentally alerted a nearby shepherd while trying to steal his sheep. Okay. Uh, the shepherd then promptly shot Timur with several <laughs> arrows. Several? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Uh, one arrow pierced Timur's right leg, and another arrow severed off two of his fingers on his right hand. Whoa! Uh, thus, for the rest of his life, Timur always walked with a heavy limp and had trouble using his right hand. This is where he got the title Timur the Lame. Ah, okay. <laughs> so it was, he was actually lame. Got it. Not just not cool. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, although some believe he received these injuries while fighting as a mercenary later on in life. I kind of like the arrow legend a little better. I do better. too, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, either way, though, Timur was actually quite lame. Okay. Yes. Uh, speaking of Timur being a mercenary, Timur became a mercenary <laughs> upon reaching adulthood. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he fought for the Chagate Kanit. Kanit. Chagatai Kanit. We don't know where... He fought for the Shagatai Shagatai Khanate, okay. uh, which was a part Mongol, part Turkish nomadic kingdom. Oh, a nomadic kingdom. Yeah. That's interesting. I guess so. Mm. Uh, during his career as a mercenary, Timur quickly became well known for his expert leadership capabilities. Well, that's good. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's, as a mercenary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, a lot of soldiers started to show more loyalty to Timur than to the Shagatai Khanate, uh, whom Timur served. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, anyway, Timur helped lead lead in a few campaigns, but then the leader of the Shagatay Khanate, a man named Kurgan, these names are awesome. I know. Uh, so Kurgan was assassinated and a total power struggle ensued. Classic after assassinations. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, uh, to make matters worse, here come the Mongols again! Again? Yeah. Uh, and the Mongols want Transluxania. Okay. Uh, so doing the only honorable thing, Timur swears allegiance to the invaders uh, and is rewarded by being made ruler of Transluxania upon the successful Mongol wow, invasion. Wow, meteoric rise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then Timur immediately declares independence from the Mongols. Uh, um, mm. Okay, so he, <laughs> so he took the land. He... He's fighting with the, the Shagatai Khanate or whatever. Khanate. Yeah, uh, then he, he switches sides to the Mongols. Okay. The Mongols are successful and they give him Transoxania. And then he uh, basically flips off the Mongols and declares independence from them. Well, it sounds to me like this guy's a bit self-centered and... Mm, loyalty might be a problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Timur's dad dies. Oh. Hmm. Uh, and Timur's dad was the leader of the Burlas tribe, so now Timur is the chief of the tribe as well as ruler of Transoxania. Okay. Uh, Timur then had a brief power struggle with his brother-in-law. Uh, his brother-in-law tried to gain the people's loyalty by fear and oppression, whereas Timur tried to win their loyalty with love, gifts, and kindness. Oh, that's kind of nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, guess who won? Yeah, so uh, Timur. Timur won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and then his brother-in-law got assassinated. Well, that kind of makes sense. Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, and then Timur married his dead brother-in-law's wife. Oh, uh, what? Wait, brother-in-law's... Yeah, I don't think it was actually his sister. Okay. That's weird. It is weird. How is it not his sister? <laughs> well, uh, let's see, how would that work if you were... Well, I guess it would be his wife's brother's wife. Okay. I think. Okay, well, hopefully. <laughs> I don't think it's incest. Okay. <laughs> yes. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, it's not, because this, this lady is a, a different... She's from somewhere else. She oh, okay. is actually a descendant of the Genghis Khan. Whoa. And a member of the Mongolian Shagatay tribe. That's kind of cool. Yes. Okay. Uh, so now Timur has a claim to lead the Shagatay tribe. And there's a cool story about how Timur pursued this claim and actually became the ruler of the Shagatay tribe. And I'm totally butchering all these pronunciations, but I don't care. Uh, well, we're <laughs> sorry. We... I do care. <laughs> but I'm an American. Yeah. I can't pronounce shit. Yeah. Uh, oh. So anyway, one historian describes the election uh, for the Shagate tribe with this story. We now number 50 to 60 men, so let us elect a leader. Okay. So they drove a stake into the ground and said, We shall run thither, and he among us who is the first to reach the stake, may he become our leader. So they're deciding a presidency based on a literal race? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. And Timur is lame, remember? Oh, right. That's, so that's kind of <laughs> shitty. Yes. Okay. Uh, so they ran, and Timur, uh, he lagged behind. Oh. Uh, uh, but before the others reached the stake, he threw his cap onto it. Oh, that's badass. Yeah. Uh, those who arrived first said, We are the leaders! But Timur said, My head came in first. I am the leader. Your hat is not your head. Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, an old man arrived and said, The leadership should belong to Timur. Your feet have arrived, but before then, his head reached the goal. Okay. So they made Timur their prince. That sounds like a legend. It, it does. Okay. But who knows? Okay. There are so many weird stories. Right. And when you're this true. far back in history, legend becomes conflated with truth a lot. Well, let's be honest. Real history didn't begin until 1776. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so he won this race. Yes. Uh, okay. Now, I know this may sound of kind of confusing, but here's the gist of how Timur claimed power. Okay. Remember that about 100 years earlier, the Mongols took over much of the world and created the second largest empire that the world had ever seen. Okay. Second only to the British Empire. Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that said, there are a ton of Mongols all over the place, and they're looking for the next big leader, right? right. Yeah, well, Timur can't claim to be that leader because he's not the direct descendant of Genghis Khan. Okay. And that's why he married that gal 
who was a direct descendant, because now he has some sort of link to Mongolian authority. Ah, so it's politics. Yeah. Mm. But that's not everything. Timur is a Muslim, and Transoxania is also highly Muslim, or Islamic, and a ton of the surrounding countries are very, very Islamic. Okay. And the Islamic people are not going to follow somebody who isn't somehow connected to Muhammad's lineage or dynasty, right? Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that's the whole Sunni-Shiite battle. Oh, it's, right. It's right, all right. about Muhammad's lineage. Got like, it. Who, Got who it. gets power. Anyway, uh, Timur tells the Muslims that although he does not uh, claim to be the leader of Islam, he does claim to possess supernatural personal power given him to bu- uh, given to him by Allah in order to lead the Muslims militarily. Well, shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, now, at this time, many Muslims believed that military and political success were direct blessings from Allah, and Timur had both these things. Okay. Uh, so much of the Islamic world accept his claim and throw their lot in with Timur. So it's kind of pretty interesting how this guy did this. His world was divided by two great factions of people. You had the non-Islamic pagan Mongolian tribes, and then you had the Turkish and Arab Muslims. Right. Uh, Neither party was too fond of the other, to say the least. Yeah, I would think not. Yeah, uh, and if Timur had picked one party and abandoned the other, he probably never would have risen to the heights that he did. But because he strategically gained the loyalty of both groups, he now had the power and support to begin war and expansion. Wow. And that is what he did. Timur spent the next 35 years fighting wars. Whoa! Uh, Whoa. And that's where we'll leave him for now. 35 years of war. That's a long time. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, do you want to take a break, or do you want to just roll right into Otto von let's, Bismarck's? Let's just go. Okay. Let's just go. So let's just go to Otto von Bismarck's early life. All right. So I want you to imagine with me mm. a quaint German village filled with old buildings and an old parish church that looks like something out of Grimm's fairy tales. Uh. This is Schonhausen, an old, old village that was founded by some ancient bishops who established the town by building a brick church. Sweet. Even today, Schonhausen is a sleepy little town with a population of just over 2,000. Oh, wow. So it, but in uh, 1562, Schonhausen and its estates uh, were taken from the care of Joachim III Frederick of Brandenburg. That is who, very German. Yeah, <laughs> uh, who accepted a trade of two other villages and a bargain struck with the Bismarck family. Oh. So yeah, 1562 goes Got way it. back. So yeah. cut to about 250 years later. The oh. Bismarcks still own the land. Oh. And in April 1815, Otto von Bismarck is born in an estate at Schonhausen. Hmm. Uh, like I said, it's a quiet little place. Otto's father Carl Wilhelm Ferdinand von Bismarck is a nobleman, also known as a Junker, and holds a mildly successful farming estate in Pomerania. What is a Junker? A y- well, we're, we'll get there. Oh, okay. Okay, so, um, <laughs> basically like a nobleman, just oh, I see. tied you over. See, it's spelled Junker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just pictured him lugging around trash. <laughs> well, I just pictured the plane, because they had the Junkers oh, uh, right. planes in World War II. Or yeah, whatever. that's right. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, Ferdinand, who was uh, Bismarck's father, right. uh, was an ex-military man of the Prussian army mm. who married Louise Wilhelmine Menken, uh, daughter of a government official in Berlin. So huh, okay. just like Timur, getting a little bit, you know, political, political marriage. Yep. Is kinda... So uh, now Wilhelmine was 16 when she married Ferdinand, which Good. was not weird back then. <laughs> uh, but the interesting thing about her was that she was extremely smart and wanted to study more. Cool. Uh, but unfortunately, she was stuck on this estate raising her three children. Mm. But that didn't stop her from doing everything she could to make sure her children knew the importance of a good education. Nice. So she sent young Otto to the Plamen Institute, a progressive boys' school in Berlin. Now, the Plamen Institute was a pretty rigorous kind of place, uh, as most 19th century Western boys' schools are. <laughs> right. uh, the philosophy behind the system was that uh, a boy needed to develop as a whole, and so besides regular classes, oh. there was 
several gymnastics and athletics classes throughout the day, yeah. which is kind of cool. Kids need to move. Right. You know. So the other thing about the Plamen Institute is that it was really focused on the development of moral character within the boys who attended. Whoa. Yeah. So students who, uh, who went were taught a lot about religion and morality and were trained to look to God and morality before the intellectuals of the day. Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. So uh, Bismarck starts attending and his mother moves to Berlin to be near him and help him however she can. Good. Uh, Bismarck is trained in gymnastics, geometry, Greek, French, history, arithmetic, writing, natural history, singing, and geography. Whoa. Uh, yeah, which is pretty <laughs> stunning, honestly. That's quite a curriculum yeah. uh, for back in the day. Now, it's uh, it's worth noting that Bismarck didn't like this place. Mm. Um, it was a strict, confining sort of place. Some memories he said he never really got over. Oh, yeah. like... Uh, well, it didn't say. <laughs> Lunch money, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certain it had something to do with uh, strictness and, um, you know, whatever discipline they, they enacted there. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, anyway. it's Germany. So right. Of course. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he was here for about five years, and then when he left, he pursued gymnastics for another three. Oh. Yeah, so he's a gymnast. Oh, which sweet. Is kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, of course, this course was probably not going to satisfy a mother as ambitious as Otto's, and so, with her encouragement, he starts attending law school at the University of Göttingen. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm probably wrong, but... Uh, <laughs> however, uh, because he didn't really want to be a lawyer and was only trying to please his mother, the freedom available to him at a university sucked away all his attention, and he received average to below average marks on his exams. Yeah, he opted to spend much more time drinking with his frat bros, not a joke, oh. <laughs> uh, than study. Yeah. Nice. He was in a fraternity with all these aristocrats, um, these so the sons of aristocrats or whatever. Is he going to turn out to be just one of the biggest frat bros that we've had <laughs> on the show? <laughs> well, we'll see. Oh, dear. Uh, anyway, he moved to the University of Berlin, which was technically a step down. Okay. Um, but uh, he was only there for a while before he joined the Prussian Civil Service, becoming a reservist and switching universities again to study agriculture at the University of Griefswald. Uh, hmm. So, but he's bored. Uh, he's really, really bored. Oh. Uh, so bored they recorded it in history. <laughs> uh, right now we're looking at Otto von Bismarck, one of the human keystones that define our world today, being a bored, directionless, fun-loving, disillusioned kid. He's almost Whoa. 24 and hasn't gotten his life figured out yet. Oh. So to all of you out there listening who are discouraged with where you are in life, just remember, Otto von Bismarck has a wilderness phase too. Uh, one of Bismarck's friends at the time, uh, John Lothrop Motley, uh, an American student who was also attending the University of Griesfeld, uh, described Bismarck as a reckless and dashing eccentric, but also an extremely gifted and charming young man. Hmm. So uh, Bismarck started to see a future uh, for him in diplomacy as a result of these personal gifts uh, and tried pursuing this career by going back to the law school, but got distracted by girls uh, and chose yeah. to leave. Mm. Um, so he went back to the reserves and became an officer, but about this time Otto's mother died, oh. and his father was starting to struggle to keep things uh, together at his estate. Right. So Otto quit the army and went home to help his father keep his head above water. Uh, and this is when Otto is, again, in his mid-twenties, and that's where we'll leave him for now. Well, I feel like Otto. Why? <laughs> Just almost, well, I'm not going to say my age, but mid-20s yeah. and no idea what to do. Directionless. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing. It's like, um, it, he was, he ended up changing the world in more ways than one, and he right. still had no direction hmm. at that age. Most people are... Just kind of, well, I know I am. I'm impatient in my 20s. Yeah. <laughs> just want, sure. I just want everything to happen right now. I want but. to unite Germany. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you think? Should we take a break? I think we should take a break. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about Timur the Lame's adult life. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. 
And we are back to we talk about dead people. And when we left off, we were talking about Otto von Bismarck's early life. And now we're going to go into Timur the Lame's adult life. Now, James, preface this. Okay, yes. I want to say that this is going to get really violent and gross really fast. Fuck! Um, and I know we've covered people like Vlad the Impaler and H.H. Uh, Holmes, but... This is a lot worse. Is this going to be like the the uh, Charles Manson episode that we will never release because <laughs> it was too terrible? Of, yeah. Uh, thankfully, this happened a long time ago, but it's still terrible. Okay. Um, that is interesting, though, that the longer ago it happened, it's it becomes a little bit... It's harder for us to relate. Yeah, right? it's, it's it becomes a little more toothless. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, so take us away. Okay. Uh, back to Timur. Uh, now, so far, Timur seems like a pretty neat guy and has not really done anything truly terrible. Right. And to make him seem even more likable, here's a few cool, thing cool things about his personality. Oh, boy. Yes, uh, both Europe and the Islamic world viewed Timur as a barbarian for reasons that we'll get into later. Okay. Uh, but Timur was actually very cultured and intelligent. He spoke many languages, collected books, philosophical, philosophical leaders, and religious teachers at his capital, and made the city into a sort of cultural headquarters. Okay. Samarkand, yeah. Uh, and he... He collected them, like in all his conquests, he would collect writers and poets, oh, that's really and then just move them <laughs> like back. a living library of Alexandria. Kind of, yeah. Uh, he also enjoyed poetry and often handsomely rewarded gifted poets. Interesting. Okay, so that's about it, and let's dive into why this guy is one of the worst people of all time. Well, shit. Okay. Yes. Uh, but before we do that, I have to ask you something, Aaron. What do you know about famous Persian rugs? Um, I know that walking on them is like walking on solid gold. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that to clean thick Persian rugs, you would need a Persian vacuum. Maybe even a Persian power vacuum. Uh, oh! Hey, speaking of Persian God. power vacuums... Fuck you! There was a Persian power <laughs> vacuum that began in 1335 and had been going on for decades. Oh, wait. It began in 1335, but had been going on for decades? What kind uh, of nonsense? Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's like 1383. Oh, okay. So it began... Yeah, it's, it's been like 50 oh, years. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Uh, yeah, so Persia's just been been fighting itself, and Timur's little kingdom is right next to Persia. Yay! So Timur gets together his army and begins his conquest of Persia in the year of 1383. Why? <laughs> because it's there. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, the first big city that Timur came across was the city of Herat. Okay. Uh, the city did not surrender, uh, so Timur quickly proceeded to take the city, reduce it to rubble, and massacre almost all of the citizens. Okay, now hold on just a second. Uh-huh. Okay. Explain to me the tactical benefit of massacring an entire populace. Right. Because, like, why would a person want to do this? Okay, well, yes. The, the Mongols are known... The Mongols were, like, 100 years earlier. And they were known for being really brutal to cities that didn't surrender. Got it. And uh, they would just kill everyone and basically show the world, hey, this is what we do if you don't surrender. Hmm. Which would make other cities more inclined to surrender more quickly. So, so in the is, long run... So is Timur, like, playing to the Mongols, right? He's kind of acting like a, Mo a Mongol conqueror at this point. Okay. However... Uh, historians often note that Timur would sometimes just sack cities for the hell of it. Oh. Uh, and that's kind of what set him apart from the Mongols. Okay, so is... there wasn't, like, a system. Right. Okay. Sometimes there was, sometimes there wasn't. He was really unpredictable. All right, so he kills everyone in Herat. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, he, he, and he just destroyed it. Mm -hmm. He also conquered the nearby city of Sabzawar, uh, where he killed 90,000 people. Whoa. And then he used their heads to make two giant towers topped with lanterns. But, okay, so this is clearly fear tactics. Yes. Uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, well, that's not all. 
Uh, he also took about 2,000 prisoners who were still living and had them cemented alive into several towers. What the shit? Yeah. What the shit? Just imagine seeing that. Like, oh, God. Screams and flailing Jesus around. It just, it's Christ. the worst thing ever. What? Okay, so that's like. And this is right off the bat. Yeah, like, this is like fear tactics. Hey, I'm Timmer, and I'm the worst. Wow, way to start a career. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so after seeing how Harat and Sabzawar uh, were utterly destroyed, most of the people around these places pledged their loyalty to Timur. Begrudgingly, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, so then Timur headed west across the Zagros Mountains and came to the city of Tehran. Is that it, Tehran? I- I've always pronounced it Tehran, but I don't know. I don't know things. It's <laughs> it's the capital of Iran these days. Okay. <laughs> uh, but is Iran even an actual country? <laughs> <laughs> Not a real place? I don't know. Uh, so the city immediately surrendered to Timur, and thus he spared them of any punishment. So okay. there's that system we were talking about, but... It kind of falls apart later. Okay. Uh, anyway, in 1385, a bunch of Persians revolted against Timur, so he marched to the city of Isfizar, took all the people prisoner, and then cemented their bodies into the walls of the city while they were still alive. This is a pattern. This is a disturbing it is. pattern. Yeah. What the shit? Who comes up with that? Like, uh, let's build a, a tower or a wall out of human living humans. It's so fucked up. That's fucked, man. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he then ravaged a few more cities before returning to his capital of Samarkand in order to plan his next campaigns. Okay. In 1386, he and his boys got on the road again and headed west. Mm. He captured a few more Persian cities and heavily taxed them. Like you do. Uh, Timur made this guy named Adil the head tax collector, but then killed him after he thought the guy got corrupt. Oh, oh uh, shit. Yeah. Uh, Timur kills a lot of his own people. It's just weird. So he's like... Every diehard villain ever. <laughs> right, <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> uh, then Timur decided to pause his Persian invasion because the Mongols were threatening Timur's empire by invading nearby Georgia. Oh. And that's not the state. Oh. That's the country okay. <laughs> between the Black Sea okay. and the Caspian Sea. But I have a question. I thought he was leading the Mongols. Well, okay, yeah, there are a ton of Mongol tribes. Oh, okay. And so... they all hate each other. The reason why the Mongols ever rose to power is because Genghis Khan was able to to unite all of them. Oh, But okay. as soon as he and his immediate uh, descendants died, the Mongol Empire just split into a million factions. Got it. So Timur is leading some of the Mongols, and some of the other Mongols are invading. Uh, they're invading Georgia. Uh, so Timur marches his army, which is about 100,000 guys, through the Caucasus and into Russia to confront the Mongols. Whew, okay. Uh, Timur defeated the Mongolian army at the Battle of Kandurcha River in 1391, and then proceeded to sack and burn the city of Ryazan, uh, and he burned it to the ground. Of course. Uh, Timur then turned his eyes to Moscow. Uh-oh, a lot of people have done that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the Russians responded by sending Orthodox clergy and an army to meet Timur's, uh, Timur's men. The Wait, Orth- okay, so Orthodox clergy, so like... Priests. Uh, and... Like Christians? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the Russians are mostly uh, Christian, Orthodox Christians at this okay, point. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. Uh, so the Orthodox Christian priest presented uh, an icon of Theotokos of Vladimir. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> okay. But they've got an icon, and okay. they're, <laughs> they're waving it at Timur's army, while a bunch of the surrounding uh, Russian soldiers started singing, Oh, Mother of God, save the land of Russia. Wow. So they're not fighting. They're on opposite sides of a river, and okay. all the Russians are singing and waving pictures. Well, interesting uh yeah and timur retreated his army why 
Well, I'll get into that. Okay. Uh, the Russians started celebrating because the Vladimir icon and Mary had saved Russia. But what really happened is Timur had to retreat because the Mongols were trying to flank him. Wow. Yeah. So, like, at the 11th hour, it's suddenly like, oh, well, we can't take Moscow. We've right. Gotta, yeah, okay. he never did. Uh, okay. And I think so, some of the Russians still celebrate that, but... Uh, anyway, so Timur met the Mongols again at the Battle of Terek River and completely crushed them after a bunch of Mongol leaders just basically switched sides and joined Timur. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> like you do. Yeah. Uh, the Mongol Empire never really recovered from this defeat. Interesting. Uh, now, the, now that the Mongols were no longer a threat, Timur started marching his army back towards the Middle East, but not before burning a few cities to the ground. Okay, what is his goal? Like, is he just conquering? Like, is that his thing? He it just... seems like that's the goal. Okay, just to have lots of land and people attacks. Well, and he he wanted to be the next Genghis Khan. Like, Genghis Khan oh, okay. was one of his heroes, and he just wanted to be known for, you know, creating a giant empire. Now, what kind of support did he have? Did his people like him? Or... Um, well... Or were they just scared of him? I think both. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it kind of depends. Uh, I don't think the people he conquered really liked him. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but maybe the original Transoxanians and Mongol tribes liked him. Mm. I don't know. It didn't okay. say much about that. All right. Uh, anyway, so while Timur was doing all of this in Russia, he had some of his generals and armies busy back in Persia. So okay. he's in several places. Got it. Uh, and it turns out all was not well here. Okay. The Persian city of Isfahan, which had surrendered to Timur a few years earlier wasn't really happy with his high taxes. Okay. Uh, so the people of Isfahan did the only reasonable thing and murdered all of Timur's 3,000 soldiers and tax collectors Whoa. in the city. Whoa. Yeah. That's not, not a good well thing to them. do. No, no, no. no. Uh, Timur was absolutely furious when he heard about this and immediately ordered that every man, woman, child, cow, dog, and cat within the city be killed. That's pretty specific. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the population of the city was somewhere between 100 and 200,000 people. Oh, Jesus. And unfortunately, that is is exactly what happened. Fuck. Timur's army just completely flattened the city and killed everybody inside. Then everybody's dead body was decapitated Ugh. and the heads were made to make giant skull pyramids just outside of the city. Wow. Let me say that again. Giant skull pyramids. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. Uh, an eyewitness of this event recorded that about 28 pyramids, uh, each with 1,500 skulls, were made. Whoa! Yeah, and I, I heard somewhere else that he might have just stopped counting after 28 because he couldn't take it any longer. Wow. There might have been more. Oh. It's just terrible. That's awful. Uh, Timur then led his army uh, deeper into the heart of the Middle East. In 1392, Timur invaded Persian Kurdistan, where he secured several victories, and then marched his army straight to Baghdad, where he surprised the locals. Uh, oh, Timur, what a surprise. Oh, yeah. Let me put out some tea and biscuits. <laughs> I'm assuming they're not selling Girl Scout cookies. No. <laughs> Uh, the leader of Baghdad and the surrounding area, Sultan Ahmad, uh, fled to Syria and vowed vengeance against Timur. Yep. He will come back into the story later, but for now, Timur wants to invade he's, India. He's all over the place! He is, yeah. Uh, so in 1398, Timur uh, launched a full-scale attack on the Tula... Uh, I think it's Tugla, but... I don't know. Okay. It, it's the Muslim dynasty in India. Remember that the, the Muslims and the Indians had, or the Hindus had been fighting over India for centuries. Oh, right, right. right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, Timur took a few towns and massacred several populations, of, of course, course uh, and then eventually crossed the Indus River and took on the sources, the forces of Sultan Nasir Uddin. Okay. Uh, and Timur repeatedly defeated these forces because they had been weakened by previous civil wars. Uh, and the big final battle took place on December 17th, 1398. Uh, Sultan Nasir Uddin had a sizable army and also had a secret weapon. Uh-oh. 120 war elephants armored in chainmail and tusks that were covered in poison. What? 
<laughs> okay, so they poison the tusk. I mean, you're if you get hit by an elephant's tusk, you're fucked right. either way. This so is just to add injury to insult. Okay, just, got oh. it. Okay. Anyway, so most of Timur's soldiers had never seen elephants before and were, uh, unsurprisingly, too scared to join combat with them. Wow. So Timur ordered that his men dig trenches and fortify their positions while he created a secret weapon himself. Okay. The atom bomb. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, that secret weapon was a bunch of camels carrying bales of hay. Uh huh. The hay was then lit on fire fire, and the flaming, howling camels were prodded towards the enemy elephants. That is horrifying! Yeah. Uh, this, of course, caused the elephants to quickly panic, go into a frenzy, and stampede many of their own men. Jesus! Timur then charged his army in and secured a total victory. Uh, he also took about 100,000 captives from this Shit. battle, and then killed them all. What the fuck, Timur? Yeah. Oh. And it's worse than that. Timur himself describes this decision. He says... I proclaimed throughout the camp that every man who had infidel prisoners should put them to death, and whoever neglected to do so should himself be executed and his property given to the informer. When this order became known to the Ghazis of Islam, they drew their swords and put their prisoners to death. 100,000 infidels, impious idolaters were on that day slain. Whoa. Yeah. Now, I have to say here, if okay. we have any Mo Islamic listeners, they're going to hate this. Yeah. And... Um, although Timur was a Muslim, Muslims hate Timur. Oh, okay. Like, and I'll get into that later, but he was terrible to everybody. Okay, so he, I mean, we already know that he was just politicizing. Exactly, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like he's just kind of a self-centered conqueror. Yes. <laughs> um, and it also sounds like when he says... 100,000 infidels, impious idolaters were he's just, slain. Yeah. I think he's just... I think he's just propagandizing. I mean, he's oh, using... Yeah. He's using religion as a weapon. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty gross. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Uh, anyway, after this battle, there really wasn't anybody left to fight against Timur's advance into India. Timur proceeded to march towards the rich and mighty city of Delhi, and as the natives of the city saw his advance, they panicked. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> There are terrible stories of men killing their own wives and children in order to save them from Timur's wrath. Whoa, that's what, terror. Yeah. Mm. Uh, whatever happened, Timur took the city, sacked it, and then massacred the inhabitants. Ugh. It was said that for even months after, Delhi reeked of decomposing corpses and was littered with heads on stakes. Oh, Just God. terrible. Wow. Uh, after subjugating much of India, Timur again turned his gaze to the Middle East and the Levant. Uh, he began by invading the Christian kingdoms of Armenia and Georgia, and was absolutely ruthless to the inhabitants. Now, all of this happened after Timur had offered peace with these Christian kingdoms. Oh, okay. So, like, peace as long as they give their, themselves over? Yeah. Okay. He, he said, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be friends if you subjugate yourselves to me and if you adopt Islam oh, okay. uh, and reject Christianity. And the king of Georgia, King Bagrat V, <laughs> Bagrat, uh, he accepted these terms and Timur sent 12,000 soldiers to Bagrat so that Bagrat could use them to expand Timur's empire. That seems, like, really suspicious. Hmm. Yeah, um, and it gets more suspicious because uh, King Bagrat's conversion conversion was all a ruse. Oh! As soon as the 12,000 troops arrived, King Bagrat and the Christian forces ambushed them and killed them all. Wow. Uh, seeing that Georgia and Armenia would not reject Christianity, Timur became furious and immediately invaded them with full force. Ugh. Timur's army just utterly destroyed everything. Uh, of course they did. Uh, many of the young people were enslaved and the old were massacred, of wow. course. 
Uh, it's estimated that about 60,000 Christians were taken into slavery, and there's really no estimates as to how many were killed, but probably a lot, a uh, lot bigger of a Yeah, number. I would think so. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, the Nestorian denomination of Christianity never fully recovered from this invasion, and only a few pockets survive today. Wow, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, and they were a pretty big Middle Eastern de- Christian denomination at that time. And he just kind of murdered them all. Wow. Uh, now, do you remember that guy named Sultan Ahmed who had ruled Baghdad and then fled when Timur arrived? Yes, I do now. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, it turns out that while Timur was busy in India, Sultan Ahmed returned to Baghdad and took it back over. Oh! Yeah, Ahmed then did the only wise thing and started publicly making fun of Timur the Lame's handicapped leg and arm. Oh! Which is just dumb. That's 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 shitty. I mean... Yeah, well, yeah. You can, you can make fun of a lot about Timur. Um, that seems to be, like, the lowest blow of the- of the lowest blow. Yeah, and when he's already taken your city once, uh, he's gonna do it again. So was Timur pissed off? Timur was pissed off. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he marched his giant army to Baghdad, and Sultan Ahmed fled to the Ottomans- Ottoman Turks for protection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm out of here! I didn't know you were gonna get mad about it! <laughs> Uh, Timur demanded that Baghdad surrender, but the inhabitants refused. So after a 40-day siege, the city was taken, and all of its inhabitants were massacred. Again? Again. Ugh. Well, they hadn't been the first time oh, they right, surrendered, right, right. Uh, but this time they were. Uh, Timur demanded that each of his soldiers should bring him two heads of decapitated Baghdad inhabitants. Oh, God. If they didn't obey this command, their heads should be taken instead. Jesus Christ! But there weren't enough people in Baghdad for his soldiers to collect from. Uh. So they started decapitating prisoners, people in the countryside, and in some cases, even their own wives and family members in order to fulfill Timur's command. Holy shit! Just terrible. Wow. Anyway, the destruction of Baghdad was so terrible that about 90,000 Muslims were killed, and Timur did not even bother to elect a new governor over the flattened city. Oh my god. Uh, the skulls were then made into 120 pyramids outside of the city. Okay, okay, hold on. Yeah. So now he's killed 90,000 Muslims, yeah. but I thought he was leading the Muslims. Well, yeah. It's complicated. It's really complicated. The Muslim world has been, like, they were all united under Muhammad and then a few other caliphates, but at this point... There are so many denominations and political fragmentations of the Islamic world that he's leading some and he's fighting others. It's... That's a mess. Yeah, that is a mess. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so there was a problem for Timur. He still hadn't caught that guy, Sultan Ahmed, who had insulted him. (laughs) And Sultan Sultan. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. The salty Sultan insult. (laughs) The salty insult and Sultan. (laughs) Right. Ahmed. Ahmed. (laughs) So Ahmed had run to the Ottoman Turks for help, okay. and it turns out the ruler of the Ottomans, uh, Sultan Bay- Bayezid, Bayezid mm-hmm. didn't like Timur, and so he started sending Timur a bunch of basically hate mail. <laughs> so these are like mean <laughs> tweets? Yeah. <laughs> and Timur responds with more hate mail. <laughs> They're like 14-year-olds. It's like Trump getting in an argument on Twitter yeah, with somebody. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Timur, Katie doesn't even like you. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so Timur also invaded Ottoman territory. Okay. Uh, on his way there, Timur destroyed the city of Aleppo uh. and made pyramids of 20,000 skulls outside of the city. He just keeps hitting these major cities that we hear about even today. Yeah, yeah, and it took years for them to rebuild. Wow. Um, but I think the mascot of 
Timur's reign is just a pile of skulls. Yeah, <laughs> a pile of skulls or people in the walls, I mean. Right, yeah. Jesus. Uh, he then marched to the mighty city of Damascus, again, one of those cities we, we hear about. Mm -hmm. uh, the city of Damascus was uh, ruled by the Egyptian Mamluk dynasty, but the Mamluks were unable to send reinforcements, so the city was left to fare for itself. Uh-oh. Uh, the city held out for about a month until Timur finally took over. Jesus. Uh, he then sacked the city, and this event is often referred to as the Rape of Damascus. Oh my god. Uh, rape, murder, torture, and pillaging were greatly prevalent. Okay. Uh, the only people who were spared were the skilled artisans who were captured and sent to work in Tim Timur's capital of Samarkand. So you're telling me that the only people that survived this awful event <laughs> were the filmmakers and podcasters? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. That's so stupid. It is. Ugh. Ugh. Uh, and of course, many civilians were beheaded and their heads piled into pyramids. God damn it. And there is still a plaza in modern-day Damascus that is called the Tower of Heads. Oh, that's so depressing. Oh uh, my god. Uh, interestingly enough, Damascus in some ways never recovered. Before Timur, Damascus made some of the best swords in the whole world. Okay. Uh, Damascus steel was the phrase used to describe such swords. And even the non-Islamic crusaders praised Damascus for these swords. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Timur basically relocated this whole industry to his capital, Samarkand, and that's the end of Damascus steel. Well, shit. Yeah. Uh, anyway, tensions between Timur and the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid, Bayezid, uh, whatever, <laughs> were not improving. <laughs> okay. Uh, Timur captured one of Bayezid's son and tortured the kid. What? And Bayezid responded by sending Timur a letter that said such things as, no, O ravening dog named Timur, if thou hast not courage to meet me in the field, mayest thou again receive thy wives after they have thrice endured the embraces of a stranger. <laughs> oh! Oh, oh! Basically saying that his troops are going to rape Timur's wives. Oh! Not a good thing to say. What is it with this hate mail? I don't These know. mean tweets. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, wait, hang on. Yeah. But his son was being tortured by that Timur. That is true. Yes! <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, Timur immediately marches his army into Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey, and Bayezid uh, answers by marching his army to meet him. While on their way to meet each other, Timur carefully marched his troops next to water and food resources while Bayezid forces mar uh, Bayezid mar uh, forced marched his soldiers away from any such resources. <laughs> you totally fucked up. I fucked it up. Okay, so... so The Turks are just going there as fast as they can, and they're not caring about food or water resources, whereas Timur is taking his time, you know, strategically marching next to rivers Makes sense. and food sources. Okay. So basically the battle was done before it began. Oh no. Uh, the big decisive battle was the Battle of Ankara, which took place on July 20th, 1402. Wow. Uh, the battle began with lots of Bayezid's forces switching sides and joining Timur. Now I want to talk about that year, 1402. Uh-huh. That's 90 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah. And what I've been imagining this whole time is like this crusader sort of oh um, right yeah the sort of atmosphere and i guess that's probably accurate i mean were they using guns at this point they were uh it wasn't they weren't as prevalent as other weapons but that's the interesting thing about like the the renaissance area and the medieval era is there's no there's no exact date where it switches over yeah it's just this like 200 years of slow transformation and in various places not across the world right yeah for sure yeah because this just this really does just sound like a brutal story from the turn of the millennium. I mean, yeah. you know. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. Um, 
Anyway, so a bunch of guys joined sides. And this is the Battle of Ankara? Yes. Okay. Uh, so those who stayed with the Ottomans were massacred. Of course. Possibly up to 80,000 guys died in this battle. Oh, God. Uh, what resulted was that the Ottoman Empire was thrown into a period of civil war for about a decade. Uh, Timur had uh, full access to pillage all of Turkey, and Bayezid was now Timur's prisoner. He remained a prisoner for the rest of his life and died in captivity years oh, later. Oh, that's shitty. Well, yeah, sources disagree as to how Timur treated Bayezid. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, Timur's sources uh, say that he treated him quite well and gave him free range to walk around the city, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Other sources say that Timur kept Bayezid in an iron cage and would bring him out to entertain get dinner guests. I'm tempted to believe that one. Yeah, and that's okay. not it. Uh, oh, shit. These sources also say that Bayezid's wife was forced to dance naked for Timur's guest. Oh. And upon seeing this, Bayezid committed suicide by hitting his head against the cage bars. Oh, fuck. Yeah, either wow. way, he died in Timur... He died in captivity. That is a brutal story. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, Timur's just terrible. <laughs> yeah. He's a piece of shit. Yeah. Anyway, after the battle, Timur sacked much of the Turkish countryside. He attacked the city of Siwas in Turkey and told the inhabitants that if they surrendered, none of them would be killed. So they surrendered, and Timur kept his promise. Okay. And had them all buried alive. What the <laughs> fuck, Timur? I know. And this is the thing about his system not making sense. Because right. they surrendered. Right. And then he, he killed them all. By burying them alive. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I guess he didn't kill them, though. That's so he kept his promise. He didn't yeah. kill them. No, come on. He killed them. For he fuck's did, sake. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Timur eventually made his way to the city fortress of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was at that time a Christian city and was ruled by the Crusader Order known as the Knights of Rhodes. Okay. Uh, these knights had managed to hold out for decades against the Ottoman forces, so they felt pretty comfortable defying Timur. And uh, Smyrna is in. South, you know, western Turkey on the coast. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Timur offered them peace, but the knights refused, and so Timur took Smyrna and massacred the inhabitants. Oh, no. Yeah. This Christian. I was kind of hoping those knights of Rhodes would, ho like, hold out and beat him. Well, they held out for a while, and actually a lot of the knights uh, managed to flee um, via boats. Okay. But they kind of abandoned the civilians. Oh, that's kind of shitty. It's shitty. Anyway, this Christian defeat kind of woke up Europe. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah? Up until this point, Christian Europe had seen Timur as kind of a good guy. How? Well, here's the thing. He had defeated the Turks, and the Turks had been invading Europe for hundreds of years. Okay. Uh, and so the Christians hated the Turks a lot more than they hated Tim Timur. Kind okay. Of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, kind Got of. Got it. Okay. But mm. now Timur is kind of scary. <laughs> okay. And he just took over a crusader fortress. Um, anyway, for more... Uh, so, yeah, kind of like what I said, they hate the Christians hate the Turks. And if you okay. want more information on this, you should listen to our episode on Elizabeth Bathory and Vlad the Impaler. Oh, yeah, you should uh, do that. Episode three, I think. Yeah, that's three. Yeah, that mm. talks a lot about the Turks and Christian relations. Mm. Yeah, uh, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Anyway, now Europe was waking up to Timur's power. But Timur never got around to invading Europe, and I think that's possibly why nobody in the West knows about him. Right. Yeah, sure he was terrible, but he never really interacted strongly with Europe, and thus kind of only shows up as a footnote in European history. Mm. Uh, which is interesting, because in the Middle East and India, everyone knows Timur's name. Really? He's kind of like a name like Genghis Khan. Oh, yeah. Everyone just fears just the mention of him. Well, it, it's going to sound terrible, but I never heard of him until you started researching him. Right, Because yeah. I was like, and then when I found out everything he did, it was like, holy Whoa. shit, why do we not talk about this? And it, you're right, there is kind of a bias, and I think, it, you know, it's kind of why we have so many um, European characters on the show. Uh, yeah, it's because... 
they, you know... It's a Western mindset. It's a Western we, mindset, yeah. and we're not really exposed to the other side very much. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that is that is crazy. And I'll, I'll talk later when we get to his end in death, I'll talk about just how awful Timur was, mm -hmm. as in, you know, amounts of people and whatnot. And a lot of historians think he was one of the worst people, if not the worst person to ever live. Wow. Uh, he killed more people than Hitler did with the Holocaust. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. And of, like... So many different people. Like, that's, yeah, I mean, he, the, what the Mongols, the the Muslims, the Christians. That's like, the thing. Yeah, I was reading this article about him, and it said he was nobody's friend. Yeah. You, and at this point in time, kind of like you said with the Crusades, you had religious groups fighting religious groups. The mm -hmm. Christians and the Muslims were fighting each other. Those were very strict lines. The Muslims and the Hindus were fighting each other. Those were strict lines. But Timur was an enemy of Hindus, of Muslims, and of Christians. Like, no one was safe based on religion, which was kind of new for the time, huh. especially in the area. Well, it's just, it's, it just sounds like a, again, a self-serving kind of son of a Thug. bitch. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Oh, uh, shit. Well. I guess we'll finish. That kind of wraps up his, his adult life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, uh, I think... I think I just want to go straight into Otto von Bismarck's adult life. Okay. Unless you want to take a break. Nope, that sounds good to me. Okay, so, Otto von Bismarck's adult life. So, when we left Otto von Bismarck, he was a directionless 20-something who couldn't seem to focus himself on any particular direction in life. Right. Thus, directionless. Yes. <laughs> uh, however, when his mother died, uh, you'll remember she was in Berlin with him while he yeah, was yeah, yeah. training and whatnot. Uh, when his mother died, he immediately returned to his father's estate to help him ca take care of the work that was piling up, and also to help his father cope with his wife's death. Oh, that's nice. Um, so, he was here for eight years. Uh, wow. living. So, yeah, he goes into his 30s yeah. just as a farmer. Um, but he was living the slow and methodical life of a Prussian country squire. Hmm. Um, he would later remember these years quite fondly, and would grow nostalgic about these simple times, especially when he got involved in the insanity that is politics. Right. Um, it was also during this time that he met a woman named Marie von Thadden, oh. uh, the wife to one of his friends. Oh. He found her absolutely <laughs> remarkable and strikingly moral. Oh. Um, and he ended up marrying her cousin, actually, oh, uh, Johanna von Putkamer. I think that's how you pronounce it. Putkamer. Hmm. Um, Putkamer. <laughs> she was also a very pious woman, and the moral influence of both Marie and Johanna pushed Bismarck's morality and faith in directions he had never experienced. Oh, cool. Uh, it was while he was courting her that he experienced what amounted to a total religious conversion, hmm. convincing him to, to become a pietist Lutheran. Okay. Uh, he described it as an event that gave him remarkable inner strength and security, confident qualities that a lot of people would criticize and also adore in the future. Huh. Um, as for the marriage, it was, by all accounts, a very happy one. Uh, Otto was absolutely in love with Johanna, and she was absolutely in love with him. Oh, they had three kids that's together. That's so rare in history. Yeah, like, it's not a political move. He just, no. He's actually smitten with this woman. That's amazing. Up until, I mean, up until he died, I mean, like, and I think I get to it later on, the last thing he said was he just wanted to see Johanna one more time. Oh, that's, that's so yeah. sad. But anyways, Beautiful. so it's 1847, <laughs> okay. and Bismarck somehow gets sucked back into politics. Mm. Um, he was 32 at this time, wow. and he was chosen as the representative in the new Prussian legislature known as the Veronit... <laughs> I think it's Veronita Lantag. Lantag. Yeah, sounds Okay, I'll just call it the Lantag. Um, it was here that his more conservative side came out. Okay. Uh, after his conversion, Otto became much more of a no-nonsense royalist and was known for being sharp as a tack during negotiations. Huh. Um, he was known to believe that the monarch was blessed with the divine right to rule and other things that are kind of old-fashioned. No, real quick. So conservative, <coughs> like the political meaning of conservative at this time is... 
in different. this space was like supporting the monarchy. Yes. Okay. Supporting the monarchy. That makes more sense. Um, that kind of thing. The old way of um, life. And it's important to note that this is uh, after the Holy Roman Empire had divided. Okay. So right. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Sounds good. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, though, uh, royalist or not, the world was changing fast before his eyes, which is to say people don't like monarchies anymore. Sure. <laughs> um, we're starting to descend into more nationalism and, you know, whatnot. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which we'll talk about later also. Um, but the king at the time was named uh, King Frederick William IV, and he was in trouble. Oh, dear. Um, the Germans, again, were really beginning to get tired of the monarchy. For one, uh, taxes were extremely high. Yeah. Um, for two, political censorship was getting out of hand. Interesting. Right, so like, uh, the, the monarchy is like keeping people from talking about nationalism, socialism, all these other right. new ideas that are sort of spawning around the world. Yeah. Um, but they're being like extremely conservative and closed-minded. I'm not saying the two are the same. Sure. Um, but they were, you know, silencing people who wanted to change things. Not good. Um, and this was a time after the French Revolution and the American Revolution. Oh, dear. Uh, the power globally was going to the people. But right. in Germany, there was still this pervasive system of aristocracy and division. Uh, working class conditions were terrible to boot. And so we see something like a precursor to the Russian Revolution, which would begin something like 50 years later. Hmm. Uh, and guess who was leading the revolution? In Germany. Um, Brad Pitt. <laughs> uh, well, no. Okay. <laughs> Close. Um, but just like in the Russian Revolution, it was college students who mm. led the revolution. Uh, and what they uh. wanted was the unification of German lands. So, okay. You see, at this time, Germany was divided up into a whole bunch of states uh, that had one, in, one had been one time nominally connected by the title of the Holy Roman Empire. Right. But that ended in 1806. Hmm. So basically what's left is something like the United States of America if the states weren't united. Okay. Um, it's all very complicated, but the point is the whole region is just straight up splintered. Yeah. Uh, now these countries all differ pol politically, but what connects them is language and culture. They're and all German. Yes, they're all German, and that's that's the thing that keeps them together. Right. Um, so the revolutionaries, but that doesn't really mean anything besides sure. outside of like on a ground level. Because yeah, we, we might be German, but I'm Bavarian. Right. And you're from Hamburg. Or right. Whatever. Right. Yeah. So um, these revolutionaries at this time uh, basically convinced the king that efforts should be made to reunite all these lands in the region and. Bismarck, being a conservative monarchist, didn't like this one bit. Interesting. Uh, in fact, one time he was making plans to raise an army and march into Berlin to free the king from the influence of the revolutionaries. Uh, Whoa. But long story short, the revolution fell apart when it became divided on itself, much like the communist revolution in Russia. Right. Um, which we talked about. Um, yep. Uh, so, uh, let's see, where was it? So, the revolution fell apart. Um, and the king took control of Berlin, and Bismarck was appointed as the Prussian representative in the Federal Diet in Frankfurt. Okay. Uh, basically as a reward for staying loyal to the monarchy. Hmm. The, uh, is that the Prussian monarchy? Uh, yes. Okay. So, it's 1851, and Bismarck is making waves! Hmm. There are still people in the German Confederacy, uh, who want all the little states to unite into one massive country, and Bismarck is having none of it! Remember, he's Prussian, and he also loves Prussia, but Prussia is, to his dismay, being seen as a secondary power in the German Confederacy, oh. uh, with Austria being the lead. And all this does is make him long for Prussia to be that highest power. 
Uh, but now he's in Berlin, away from his Prussian friends, and his views are starting to change. Okay. Uh, in fact, he's beginning to shift from his position of being anti-unification to actually becoming slightly in favor of it, yeah. but only because he thinks it might benefit Prussia. Okay. So in 1857, Frederick Wilhelm IV, the guy, uh, William IV, sorry, the guy who nearly lost the revolutionaries, had a terrible stroke and was paralyzed. Oh, this is when a guy named Wilhelm hits the scene. You might know him better as Kaiser Wilhelm I. But we'll get to him later. Uh, In 1859, Bismarck was sent to Russia as a Prussian ambassador, where he worked for three years before being moved to Paris to work as an ambassador there. Hmm. This meant he had about 11 years of experience in foreign policy at this point. Wow. So in 1861, two years later, he was brought back to Prussia. Here he spent a few years trying to get an arms bill passed for Prussia, but failed again and again. So... He's not, like, wildly successful. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so it's 1862, and this is a year of great frustration for Bismarck. Um, he was constantly portrayed as an out-of-touch and sometimes some kind of backwoods conservative. Hmm. Uh, and he spoke like one. Oh, no. He made a famous speech uh, to the Budget Committee about being de- after being denied uh, the resources he needed to strengthen Prussia. He said... Prussia's boundaries, according to the Vienna treaties, are not favorable to a healthy state of life. The great questions of the time will not be resolved by speeches and majority decisions. That was the great mistake of 1848 and 1849, but by blood and iron shall we solve these. So I've heard that quote before. Yeah, and he's not kidding. Oh, no. Uh, now, this next bit is all very complicated, just like all politics. Yes. Uh, so I'm just going to do what I can to simplify it. Okay. Uh, Bismarck wants Prussia to be the most powerful element in the German Confederacy. Right. Right now, it's not. Okay. Austria is. But the way he sees that... Uh, changing is by uniting the other German states under the rule of Prussia against Austria. Mm. And through a bunch of political maneuvering, he starts to approach this goal. Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, Austria is completely aware of what Bismarck is planning (laughs) on doing and backs out of an agreement made with Bismarck regarding who possesses what states. Uh. And Bismarck uses this as an excuse to declare war on Austria and sent Prussian troops to occupy some Austrian land. Hmm. The states are then divided about whether they want to support Austria or Prussia, which is right. pretty much going with the plan. Uh, but the Nunders, n- numbers, Nunders, numbers end up e- evening out, so uh, Austria and Prussia are pretty much equally matched. Okay. So it's it was going to be like a like a underdog story, but now it's just you know two right. giant countries. Yeah. Um, so war is about to break out, and it's about this time that a man named Ferdinand Cohen Blind is on a long hike through Bavaria and Bohemia. Okay. Radicalized at his university, the thought uh, that he ought to kill Bismarck crosses oh, no. his mind, uh, and he decides to do it. In the May of 1866, Cohen Blind waited in a square in central Berlin, knowing that Bismarck would pass through on his way home. And this, to me, is hilarious, because okay. it's a lot like the guy who tried to, who tri- eventually assassinated, um, what was that president we talked about? When we're talking about Guiteau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget what president, but he basically just had to wait for the guy to walk through the park. Like, it's a completely different time. Yeah. Politicians and statesmen are just, like, kind of walking around the city. No bodyguards or anything. Yeah, so um, Bismarck is going home, and he passes by Cohen Blind, and Cohen Blind shot him in the back twice. Then Bismarck spins around and charges the assassin. He's shot three more times in the chest before soldiers are able to disarm the assassin and arrest him. Wow. Uh, After this, Bismarck walks home, having been shot five times. Whoa. Amazingly, 
Uh, the first three shots only grazed Bismarck, and the other two had literally ricocheted off of his ribs. Hmm. He was fine, <laughs> but Cohen Blind wasn't! <laughs> uh, that same night, he committed suicide while in custody. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, but anyway, this- Justice is blind. <laughs> Cohen Blind. <laughs> oh, God. Fuck! Uh <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this event did not stop the war between Austria and uh, Prussia. I didn't think so. Uh, but it's a short war. Okay. Uh, it lasts something like seven weeks and ends with the Battle of Konigratz, uh, an encounter where 215,000 Austrians <laughs> face off with about 125,000 Prussians. So not great odds like for half Prussia. half as much, yeah. Yeah, but thankfully they have some advantages. Hmm. First of all, they're being led by famous tactician Helmuth von Moltke, uh, a man who would later lead the German army in World War I. Oh, wow. Uh, secondly, they have what are called breech-loading rifles, mm. Which are better than muskets. Yeah. Uh, not only can they fire way faster, they can also load and fire while prone. Oh, right. Uh, so a musket requires you to stand up to reload proper properly. So you need gravity, yeah, right? Right. So there's that. Um, the results are pretty bad for the Austrians. <laughs> oh, no. uh, the Prussians lost nine thousand men. The Austrians lost 31,000, oh, so geez. it's a pretty significant yeah. defeat, uh, especially since you know the Prussians were like Who double, are they? Like, outnumbered. Yeah. Um, uh, so the result of this loss is that, uh, for the Austrians, it is pretty staggering. Well, so yeah. the Prussians had gone from being a pesky second-in-command to being a, the leading shareholder of power in the German Confederacy. Huh. Uh, Bismarck wanted to make sure that the Austrians were completely destroyed after this, though. Uh, he could have made it so the Austrians had to pay severe reparations or anything like that, yes. the peace negotiations. But uh, Bismarck's goal was not to destroy Austria, just to subdue it. Uh, and now it looked like German unification could happen at any moment. Now, I gotta say, mm -hmm. and I know we'll get into this later, but a lot of people will blame Bismarck for kind of being an early Hitler in a way, as in like wanting to expand Germany and right. take over all the surrounding lands. Right. But he wasn't, he didn't, he never wanted to conquer non-German lands. Yes. He just wanted to subdue them and focus on uniting Germany, at right. least as I understand it. Right. That's, I mean, that's pretty much how it, how it was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so a new order was established. It was called the North German Confederation, and it saw its first days in 1867 with Prussia as the leader of this new unity. Sweet. Bismarck immediately started working on getting the other German states to join. Uh, but negotiations, negotiations with the southern states weren't working. So was the southern states. <laughs> <laughs> they liked the things, the way things were. Ah, yes. Uh, so Bismarck turned to more demanding means. Mm. Uh, so Bismarck started making plans for a war with France, hoping that a conflict would force the southern states to join the North German Confederation out of loyalty to German blood. Right. Uh, and it, it worked. Uh, France declared war on Prussia in July 1870. This is known as the Franco-Prussian War. Uh -huh. uh, now, Bismarck had some worries about this. The chief worry was that Austria might ally, ally with the French in order to seek retaliation for the country's defeat. Hmm. He also feared the Russians might intervene because they were allied with France. Oh. Um... Bismarck was convinced that the only way to unite Germany was by this war, uh, even though he knew he could crush the French alone uh, by sheer manpower. Sure. Uh, but he also was aware that if France won, the world would see it as a dangerous resurgence of French power. Oh. So if well, right, because Napoleon was just what seventy years earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if the French win over over you know Prussia and the Confederacy or whatnot, yeah. everyone's going to see it as the you know the French are coming back. Sure. Um, but if Prussia won, nobody would worry about it because at least it's not France. Right. Right. So nonetheless, war was coming, mm. and France mobilized on the 19th of July, 1870. And Bismarck's gamble turned out in his favor. All of the German states joined to fight against France on Prussia's side, mm. and the Germans crushed the French <laughs> again and again. Oh. 
being so successful that they actually managed to besiege Paris. Oh, jeez. Um, now, with all these states joined up in arms, Bismarck made the move to get them to stay united in peacetime. Yes. Uh, he designed individual favors for each state, uh, should they stay unified post-war, and that worked. Hmm. Uh, Wilhelm I was proclaimed German emperor on the 18th of January, 1871. So let me get this straight. Bismarck is not the leader of Prussia. No. He's just like the strategic mastermind behind it? Uh, basically. And William the or Wilhelm I is the King. Yes, okay. that's right. Um, right. So now Wilhelm I has been proclaimed the emperor, which means he's now the leader of not just Prussia, but all these states. The German states, yeah. Right. Um, and this happened in 1871. Okay. Uh, so this new German empire was a federation made up of 25 states, all of which maintained individual control over themselves. Huh. Now, Prussia won the war with France, but Austria would still not unite with Prussia. Yes. Uh, it didn't matter, though, because there was a German empire in Austria, with Austria being substantially weaker. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, two separate powers. Sure, um, makes but, sense. Yeah. So anyway, Bismarck was made the first imperial chancellor of the German Empire. Got it. And about this time, in 1871, Bismarck launched what was called the Kulturkampf, uh, meaning culture struggle, huh. uh, which was anti-Catholic in nature. Okay. Uh, Bismarck, Bismarck was genuinely worried that the Catholic Church would try to turn the new German unification into a kind of new Holy Roman Empire. Right, right, right. Uh, a giant country that's governed by the Church. Well, that's what the whole medieval era was. It was yeah. just this fight between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. Right. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, so yeah, he's genuinely worried about this. Um, this process involved the imprisonment and expulsion of many Catholic priests in Prussia. Yeah, uh, uh, I know. Along with all the Jesuits. Um, okay. And also involved the dissolution of the Catholic Department of the Prussian Ministry of Culture, which was essentially the political strong arm of the Catholic Church in Prussia. Huh. So this had the strange effect of turning secular and socialist voices against all religion, including oh. his own Protestantism. Huh. Um, and this phase ended in 1878, though, uh, when Pope Leo XIII came in under the scene and started negotiating with Bismarck to get rid of the anti-Catholic laws. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but Bismarck was also working on what was called Germanization, hmm. uh, which is essentially which is essentially aimed to make everyone in the German Empire more German. Um, this included campaigns to get everyone speaking German, expelling Polish people from other countries. Oh. Um, Bismarck is quoted as saying. Uh, hammer the Poles until they despair of living. I have all the sympathy in the world for their situation, but if we want to exist, we have no choice but to wipe them out. Wolves are only what God made them, but we shoot them all the same when we can't get at them. Oh, Jesus! Yep, yep, so... Whoa, that, that went really downhill really yeah, that fast. that came out of nowhere, didn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, but it was, it was all from this process of wanting to have a purified German people. Like, yeah. uh, kind of like a utopia. Um, I got it, yeah. And and this is but again, this is not like an uncommon thing. This isn't just sure. Germany. This oh, is for sure. This is all the major powers in the world are like turning toward nationalism. Yeah. Well and Germany was a little late on the scene. Oh actually. yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um Italy too. Um yeah, and that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because yeah. when we think about nationalists, we think of Germany, Germany and Italy. Italy. Yeah. Right. Uh, but they were the later ones. Interesting. Um, so again, this is really not that unusual. Bismarck is just sort of jumping on the bandwagon of purifying countries right. and things like that. Not good, um, but no, it's not. not it's not good, but it did happen. And nationalism uh, was just a really. It was a force at yeah. the time, yeah. um, and it resulted in all kinds of massacres and expulsions and even genocides in some mm. cases. Like uh, with Belgium, they. Um, committed a genocide in Africa um, oh, right. at this time right, right. with King Leopold. Um, yeah. But we'll talk about him on some other episode, I'm sure. Terrible guy. So anyway, 
Uh, Bismarck also worked his best to form uh, alliances with Austria, France, and Russia. Hmm. The three of them together could possibly ally and destroy Germany. So he wants them to be his friends. Right. Makes sense. Um, And kind of ironically, France and Russia, you know, ended up being enemies to the German army in World War I. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But the three of them, you know, could be the powerhouse that would take down Germany, the new Germany. Yeah. Um, So his solution was to form an alliance with Tsar Alexander II of Russia and Emperor Francis... uh, Joseph of Austria-Hungary and just kind of forget about the French. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, alliances between the three were on and off again, uh, eventually falling apart. It was kind of like a balancing act. Sure. Um, Russia and Germany decided to remain neutral unless oh. Russia attacked Austria-Hungary, in which case there would be war. Oh, dear. Um, in 1888, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm I died and gave up the throne to his son, Friedrich III. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, Friedrich had cancer oh, and no. reigned only about three months months before he died and gave up the throne to, drumroll please, Kaiser, no, sorry, <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm II. Ah, yeah, so I love his music. The- <laughs> <laughs> um, so Wilhelm II opposed uh, Bismarck's diplomatic attitude toward foreign countries, ah. instead believing that the only way for Germany to succeed was to eliminate the fear of conquest. Mm. Uh, Bismarck and Wilhelm II did not get along, uh, and after one too many disagreements over policy, Bismarck was forced to resign from the Chancellery in 1890. Um, He was offered several new positions to keep him in office, but Bismarck thought these things were below him and instead retired. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1894, 100 years before I was born, uh, his (laughs) wife died, and a year later his health was so bad that he was confined to a wheelchair. Um, With all that, it's time to stop with him, and when we come back to Otto von Bismarck, we'll be talking about his end, death, and legacy. Yeah, a lot to talk about. (laughs) So, I say we just go right into Timber the Lame's uh, end and death, because I really want to see this fucking bastard die. Yeah, me too. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so after Timur subjugated much of Turkey, he returned back to his homeland and made preparations to invade the Ming Dynasty in China. What the fuck? He's everywhere. Leave him alone. Jesus. So he allied with a bunch of Mongol tribes. Remember that the Mongols and the Chinese don't like each other? Right, right. the giant wall. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, anyway, so he, he allies with the Mongols and he marches east. Uh, however, he got sick along the way and died in Kazakhstan on February 17th, 1405. That was sudden. I know, and it's not bad enough for him. So wait, did his did his army continue after? No, oh, okay. uh, they did not. So they called off the invasion? Yes. Mm. So he w- Timur was buried in a mausoleum in his capital of Samar- Samarkand, or Samarkand, I don't know. Uh, Timur's descendants took the throne, but nobody t- but Timur could hold the empire together, and it fell apart very soon thereafter. Well, yeah. Kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Timur has gone down in history as one of the worst people ever, and I mentioned this earlier, but some historians argue that he actually is the worst person in history. Well, he's definitely there. And just how bad was he? Yes, so give me some stats. Well, historians estimate that Timur's conquests killed at least 17 million people. Whoa! Which was a whopping 5% of the entire world's population at that time. That is insane. Yeah. Uh, And also remember that he often left just utter destruction in his wake, and there are regions and towns to this day that still haven't fully recovered. Wow. Yeah. Uh, also, although he was a Muslim... Tim- or said he was. Right, exactly, yeah. Uh, Timur generally was not and is still not liked by Muslims. Interestingly, in some parts of the Middle East, being called a Timur is still one of the worst insults. I believe it. Yeah. 
Uh, and like I said earlier, Europe doesn't really talk about Timur a lot because he never really threatened Europe. Uh, however, Timur did, in a sense, help Christian Europe by attacking the Turks and throwing the Ottoman Empire into chaos for a few years. I see. Uh, and this gave Europe time to rebuild and prepare for more Ottoman invasions that would happen in the next few centuries. That's interesting. Which ripple. is cool because... Like, you're talking about Russian and France and Austrian and German alliances. And here's the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it was the Ottomans, the Austrians, and the Germans mm -hmm. who were allied in World War One. Oh. It's just interesting how these, you know, sides change. Yeah. Because the Austro-Hungarians fought against the Ottomans for centuries. Yeah. Well, and then in World War One, they're allies. It's just... That's so... Uh, see, that, that to me is so... Uh, I, I don't know how to say this, but like... They were allied. They were at war with the Ottomans for centuries, like mm -hmm. you said, and then suddenly they're friends with them in the war. Yeah. Um. And it's almost like you forget that they were at war ever. Yeah. Like the you just imagine the Ottomans allied with the Germans in World War One, and that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. Um. But you forget that for the longest time they hated each other. Yeah. Um. For it's sure. Interesting. It's just weird how it all changes so fast. Yeah. I guess it's partly the enemy of my enemy is my friend or whatever. That's true. And partially, I bet it's just scummy politicians yeah. lying to their people like, no, the Ottomans are actually our friends, blah, yeah. blah, blah. I, I don't know. It starts it's with just... it starts with a you know one article in a newspaper saying something something kind of stupid like you know, I, I've read articles like this where there's this transition of like uh, friendliness uh, yeah. from enemy to friends. Uh, there's these articles that come out. They're like, yeah, they like praise the person of that culture, like the glorious Ottoman. You know, the, his humble in his own way and yet yeah. brutish or some bullshit like that. And they sort of start to change public opinion about you know this this people group that they've been at war with and. I think that's just honestly that's that's straight up politics. Yeah, um, for sure. And then eventually it's like they've always been good to us. Sure, we had our differences in the past, but they've always been perfect gentlemen. Let's ally with them and fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, I think I always think that kind of stuff is very interesting. It is. But it's just yeah. Yeah. Uh, so okay, before we go back to Bismarck, I have to <laughs> I have to tell one last story. Perfect. And perhaps the most interesting story about Timur so far. Okay. And it turns out we're not done with him, even though we just covered his death. Okay. So, hundreds of years after Timur's life, our boy Joseph Stalin... <laughs> <laughs> ...became pretty interested in Timur. Hum, I wonder why. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, a Soviet archaeological team was sent to dig up Timur's grave, which was still in Samarkand, which was in Uzbekistan, I think. Okay. Um, the Soviets dug him up on June 19th, 1941. Okay. And everyone knew where his grave was, but nobody had you know, fucked with it because yeah. <laughs> all the locals were like, his grave is cursed. Oh. Don't dig him up. Okay. And when the Soviets got there, the, the natives were told them, don't dig him up. And the Soviets proceeded to dig him up. Because it's, you know, Joseph fucking Stalin. Yes. Uh, who are you more scared of? A cursed dead guy or Stalin? Right. Same thing, really. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> anyway, so there are several sources that say that Timur's tomb were cursed with the words, when I rise from the dead, the world will tremble. And also the phrase, Whomsoever opens my tomb shall unleash an invader more terrible than I. Oh. Yeah. Uh, anyway, three days after the Soviets dug up Timur. Three days. Okay. They, so they dug him up and they brought him back to Moscow. And three days later, Hitler launched his surprise attack on the Soviet Whoa. Union. Operation Barbarossa. Well, and everybody remember at this point, Moscow and Germany or Russia and Germany were allied. Yeah. And then... Hitler just kind of stabbed him in the back right. with this invasion. And just marched right in. So, wow. And that's three days after the, the Timur's curse started. That's creepy. Anyway, it gets weirder. Whoa. 
so anyway, after Operation Barbarossa, the Russians just start losing really, really fast, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Uh, after a while, Stalin kind of realized that may maybe the curse of Timur actually had something to it. So he ordered that Timur's body be sent back to his gravesite and reburied with full Islamic ritual. Oh! This happens, and a few days after Timur is reburied, the Germans surrender at Stalingrad, and the so Soviets start winning victory after victory against the Third Reich. That's... <laughs> yeah. Do you believe in magic? <laughs> I know. And it, I, I think uh, one source even says that the plane that was flying back to Uzbekistan with Timur's body flew over Stalingrad. Wow. <laughs> right. As, and if... We haven't really covered Stalingrad, but... I know I said this earlier, but when people say D-Day was the turning point of World War II, yeah. that is bullshit. <laughs> Stalingrad was the turning point of the European theater. Yeah. So it's just weird that the Timmer's curse wow. just coincided with all that That's so well. well. What was Stalin going to do with the body anyway? Well, they did check it out. Really, I think they took a cast of Timmer's face so we know what Timmer looked like. I see. And it turned out that he was actually lame, thus his name, Timmer the Lame. Got it. Uh, so they just did, you know, studies like that. And then they're like, oh, fly him back. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure that was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I say we just move over to Otto von Bismarck's end and death. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes. So Otto von Bismarck had made his mark on German history. Right. He united the country and made it extremely powerful. But near the end of his career, he was pushed out of politics and into retirement while Kaiser Wilhelm II gained more and more power over the new Reich. Mm. Uh, Bismarck wrote memoirs from his deathbed. In them, he criticized Wilhelm II very strongly. Um, remember, Wilhelm II is very interested in uh, conquering other European right. nations and uh -huh. isn't even, he's not shy about it. Yeah. Um, and the year before Bismarck's death, Bismarck predicted of Wilhelm's legacy, one day the great European war will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. What? <laughs> the hyperlink on Wikipedia for, quote, some damned foolish thing in the Balkans leads directly to the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was assassinated <laughs> in the Balkans yeah. uh, and is considered to be the event that finally triggered World War I. Wow. So he and called the, it. Yeah, he this is in the 80s or 90s of the 1800s? Yeah, yeah. And then it just Jeez. happened. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it was the perfect storm. It yeah. was the World War One was the absolute perfect storm, uh, if you can call it perfect. Nothing anything. makes sense, but it was all set up perfectly. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Wilhelm II was, I, I don't know, kind of the guy who... He was the strike point, you know, because mm. he wasn't going to let anything go unanswered, right? Yeah. And... Well, anyway, so Bismarck died in 1898 at the age of 83. Mm. Um, and his most important act in his life was the unification of Germany. Uh, it made Germany a world power, yeah. uh, and it was fairly stable until Bismarck was ousted. When Wilhelm II came into power, he knew the last thing he wanted was another chancellor like Bismarck, who basically controlled everything. Yeah. Um, he had bright new visions for the future of Germany. Other countries be damned. Mm. The fragile balance that Bismarck had struck with Russia and France would have to be set aside in order uh, for Germany's interests um, of becoming just a world, not just a world power, but a militarized world power. Ooh, geez. Right? Uh, a force to be reckoned with. And that was a very, very bad move for Germany. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, that was a long one. That was a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I know. But, like, Timur the Lame didn't know anything about him. Bismarck usually doesn't get much attention outside of a history class. So, who would you rather have come to your birthday party? Oh, God. Bismarck. <laughs> <Yeah>. Come on. <laughs> we could talk about the farm. <laughs> I mean, what's Timur going to do? Like. 
Hey, Aaron, I, I got you a pile of skulls yeah, for your birthday. I bought you a thousand skulls to commemorate your birthday. Uh, for every year you turn, he has a new pile of skulls. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. Actually, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually did something like that. No. Yeah, I mean, there are brutal things that happen in history. People give pretty sick gifts to each other. Isn't yeah. there a verse in the Bible where some guy, like, brings a hundred or a thousand foreskins to some guy? <laughs> yeah, there's something like that. Yeah, yeah thanks. Yeah. I'm gonna re-gift that. That's like... <laughs> That's like worse than when a cat. Br That's way worse than when a cat brings you a dead mouse. Yeah, well, yeah. But not that different in a way. <laughs> what? <the> <laughs> <hell>? <laughs> oh, yeah. You don't want it, but you're kind of like, well, what do I do? Say thanks. I mean, <laughs> thanks for the dicks. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not the, it's I not don't the know. same at all. Uh, oh, I've never been given a foreskin. Uh, <laughs> in fact, lots of people have had them taken away. Uh, yeah. Okay, we gotta quit. We do. We this is quit. really immature. Shall we head to the surface? Yes. Oh. So, James, uh, what are you gonna do for the rest of the day? Uh, well, I think I'm going to try and fragment Germany into a bunch of smaller states. <laughs> Good move. What about you? Uh, I am going to go find a cursed tomb ah. and trick somebody into digging it up. Mm. Well, uh, I think it's probably time to bring the show to an end for today. Uh, feel free to send all your hate mail to we talk about dead people podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and nod along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to buy us a hamburger, uh, helps tremendously. And if you can't do that, just like or follow us on SoundCloud, subscribe, rate, review. Don't give us foreskins. <laughs> please, anything but that. Shit. Uh, our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll let the close out and let the sounds of Tim of the Lame play you out. 